The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Reading today is from 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10, 14 through 15, and 19 through 26. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Amen. Thank you, Anne, for reading that passage for us this morning. Anne is, uh, you, you saw she was in scrubs and had a stethoscope around her neck. Anne is, um, works in the medical field, obviously, and uh, she, so she's high risk, and she's not been able to be with us in person, um, and uh, so she's been tuning in via live, scre- live stream, and, and we've tried as, as often as possible to uh, include folks who are not able to be here in the room in the services by having them read scripture and uh, so, Anne, we're thankful uh, for you doing that uh, today. Well, we've been in this series uh, called Life Together, which is uh, working through Paul's second letter to Timothy, and it's a study on the local church. That's really what we're focusing on in this. So not just the church at large, but, but the local body of believers And that's what this letter is about. It's written from Paul to Timothy, who's pastoring a church, and that church has some things uh, that are going on uh, in it that Paul is wanting to address and wanting Timothy to address. And it also just has a dynamic life, uh, as any local church does. And so it's a good book for us to be in to really dig into how do we, how do we, look at what it means to um, to become and to remain a healthy local church family over time. And so we're going to unpack this letter 
in, uh, in passages in the second chapter of this letter here in a little bit. Uh, and we, we mentioned last week that this sermon and last week's sermon are kind of two sides to the same coin, uh, part one and part two, uh, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, last week we talked about opposing what tears down. Today we're talking about contending for what builds up. And they really go hand in hand. In fact, the range of scriptures that we're looking at are the same. Uh, so we're just pulling out um, last week the, the, the things that tear down, and this week we're pulling out things that, that build up. And so uh, before we get into it, I want to um, take a moment to pray because one of the things that the Lord calls us to do in his words is to pray for our leaders. And uh, right now, as, as you all know, I'm sure the, the president and the first lady have both tested positive for COVID-19. And as a church, I want to take a moment and to pray for them and people in their surrounding orbit uh, as well. So let's take a moment and pray as the Lord instructs us to do for our leaders. Father, we lift up to you uh, the president and first lady and the people in his and her uh, cabinets and, and campaign and uh, just general orbit that have been exposed to COVID, uh, many of whom have tested positive. Uh, Father, we ask for your healing and we ask for your uh, preserving strength to abide with them in your word. You tell us to pray for our leaders. And so we do that now, Lord. We do it in a time when we know that for the last five or six months, um, the world has been uh, responding to a pandemic that has affected every life in some capacity or another. Uh, seeing Anne uh, just now read scripture via video because of the work that she does that puts her in proximity to this. Um, her work there has, has kept her from having proximity to us uh, on Sunday because uh, not only of her um, uh, capacity to uh, contract it, but, but the reason she's not here is her capacity to spread it uh, because of the interactions that she has with people in the hospital. And so, Lord, we're, we're living right now in a time where everybody has been affected by this. Many, many have uh, known people who have had it. Some, uh, even in this room, have had COVID. And, uh, Lord, we, we know that uh, you are sovereign over all things. And we, we ask, Father, that you would one quickly as as quickly as you as you as you will bring an end uh, to uh, the the helplessness that, that we that we have of responding to to this virus and strengthen uh, those in the uh, we're praying right now Lord specifically that you would that you would strengthen and preserve those uh, in the political process right now that that uh, that the process would not be shaped uh, by, um, by the, the, the virus, but that you would preserve and strengthen uh, lives. And uh, Lord, we ask your mercy. Uh, we ask your mercy. We ask for your protection uh, for the Biden family as well as they are campaigning and, and also running in similar circles. Uh, Lord, that you would just preserve and protect uh, our leaders at this time. We thank you for your kindness and your mercy. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so in this series, we, we've been working through what does it mean to be a local church, and one of the things that, that it's been important for us to see, and we've seen it in the, in the verses leading up to this, um, is that the ministry that Paul has called, that the Lord has called Timothy to is a difficult ministry. 
uh, there's a difficult setting. It's difficult. There, there are difficult things happening inside the church. There are difficult things happening outside the church. And, and so the ministry context that Timothy is in uh, is not that straightforward. And so for him to contend for what builds up, that word contend is really, uh, it's, it's an energetic word, right? It's kind of fighting for something. And so I want to do a quick review just to, just to remind us of the difficulty of the ministry that Timothy was in. Some things that we already know from this letter. The first thing that we know is Timothy's government was a government that threw Christian leaders into prison and sometimes put them to death. Uh, so we, Paul is writing this letter from prison, from the prison uh, and the imprisonment uh, that he will die uh, in. And so we know that the, the government that Timothy is a part of is one that throws Christian leaders into prison. So that's a difficulty. The second is that Rome itself was extremely polytheistic. Um, and the idea of worshiping one God alone or declaring or teaching that there is only one God was a very scandalous idea. And, um, and so that was there. Uh, the third is that there were some who were inside the church that Timothy was pastoring who were teaching false and divisive doctrines. And they knew they were teaching false and divisive doctrines. And then the fourth thing is that Timothy himself had a timid personality. So he was conflict avoidant, he was young, uh, he, he was afraid. It, there are references Paul makes to not be afraid, don't fear, don't be afraid of what people can do to you. Uh, that Timothy is facing this mounting pressure from every side, from outside the church, inside the church, and even in his own heart. And so when you put all those things together, together a government that throws Christian leaders into prison, uh, a culture that is... Uh, deeply committed to polytheism, a uh, church where there are people within the church who are promoting and teaching false doctrine, and then Timothy himself has this timidity. It's this picture of if nothing is done, if nothing is addressed, then what you have is the second law of thermodynamics, right, which says that things left unattended devolve into disorder and chaos. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's saying, contend for what builds up. Don't just let things devolve, don't leave things unattended, but instead attend to what's happening here. Because in Timothy's situation, it would have been very easy to just live life always reacting. But Paul charges Timothy here. He says, listen, no matter what people think about you, no matter what people say to you, no matter how weak you may feel, be strong, contend. Contend for what gives life and what builds up. And so Paul calls Timothy to this, and by proxy all believers, to be people who don't just go through life just reacting to negative things that are happening around us, which is so easy. It's so easy to live that way, right? It's so easy to just live reacting to the negatives. And instead what he's saying is proactively contend for the things that build up and that give life. And so we're going to launch into a list of these. I have three broad categories and some subpoints underneath. Um, but it's a list of things to do. And I feel like whenever we talk, whenever we launch into a list of things to do, and we come to lists like we find here in Scripture, we have to remember 
why is it that we would do anything for the Lord? Why, why are we called to obey? It's important for us to remember why we obey Christ when we come to a list of things to do because if we don't, we might replace the real motive, the Christ-exalted, grace-centered motives for obedience with impossible attempts at self-preservation. So the reminder is this that I want to give us all, is that as Christians, we do not believe, we do not believe that our behavior saves us. We just don't. We don't believe that our behavior saves us. We obey Christ because Christ has already saved us by his grace, which frees us then to live in response to that love and that mercy and that kindness. We live in response to the grace that is just lavished on us by Christ. And so obedience to Jesus is actually living as though the gospel is true, which is what we believe. And so as we get into this list of things, let's keep that straight, that the reason we would obey and the reason we would embrace a list is not so that we could get God to love us, but because God has demonstrated and shown his grace to us. So let's jump in to this list as we discuss how to build one another up. I'm going to group these into three uh, big categories. The first is strive to live at peace in the church. The second is pursue spiritual maturity and usefulness. And the third is support the church in its worship and work. So strive to live at peace in the church. Pursue spiritual maturity and usefulness. Support the church in its worship and its work. So under that first one, strive to live at peace in the church. The first point is this, be kind. Be kind like Jesus was kind. Paul says it in verse 24, he says, we must not be quarrelsome but kind to all. Kindness is a fruit of the spirit, it's basic to Christian charity, right? And kindness is also elusive. It's elusive in a very polarized society. We have a hard time being kind, especially to those with whom we disagree. But what Paul is describing is he's not describing a transaction, he's describing a character trait. Kindness is a character trait. It's, it's this, it's that our manner with others is loving regardless of their manner with us. So kindness is that, is that my manner toward you will be loving and it will be kind regardless of your manner towards me. Kindness is a way of living peaceably in a world that loves to fight. The second point in striving to live at peace with the church is speak as though words matter. I love words. I'm a word person. I love the way that you can string together a series of words that have been around forever and the meaning of a sentence will carry so much freight that it could take a book to unpack. I love the power and the meaning of words, the way that the Lord has wired us and made us to be verbal uh, communicators. And what does Paul say? He says in verses 16 and 17, and then also with a reference in 14, avoid irreverent babble. Why? Because it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. In other words, aim for every word that comes out of your mouth to be edifying. You know, what is it we, we try to teach our kids? That it is, is what you're about to say uh, necessary, true, and kind, right? Is what you're going to say necessary, true, and kind? Does it need to be said? 
Because some of the quarrels that were happening in Ephesus, Paul describes as, as pointless quibbles. And I think it's interesting because, because some of us just love to fight. We love to argue. We love to just parse things out to the nth degree. And what Paul is saying is there's no end to that. Like you will never reach the end of that style of arguing, that, uh, that manner of arguing. In fact, what he says, it leads into more and more ungodliness. Why? Because these arguments, these, this irreverent babble, it never ends, and instead what it does is it just parses and divides and parses and divides and parses and divides. And it turns people against each other, and in the process of doing that, it wastes time. It wastes time and it wastes energy, right? If you're a person, I didn't say this in the earlier service, maybe I shouldn't say it now, I'm going to. If you're a person who, um, nope, not going to say it, not going to say it. <laughs> Three, correct gently. I'm really not, like I, the Holy Spirit's in my ear telling me to move on, so I'm moving on. Correct gently, uh, verse 25, he says, uh, he says a, godly ma- a godly person corrects his opponents with gentleness. I love this. In other words, he's saying when you argue, have a purpose in the argument. And the purpose should be more than just to win the argument. Correct opponents with gentleness. Pray that the distance would give way to common ground, the distance between you and the person that you're arguing with. Gentleness is also a fruit of the Spirit. Isn't it interesting that kindness has come up, gentleness has come up? Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, but it's also important to see that he doesn't just write about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, but he lists them there in Galatians, but they come all through when talking about what does it look like to live as a follower of Jesus? What it looks like is to live as somebody who is bearing those fruit. And gentleness is one of them. It's a fruit of the Spirit, meaning that when we have to engage in confrontation, and sometimes in this life we have to engage in confrontation from time to time if we're going to deal honestly with one another, sometimes we have to, that when we do that, our aim shouldn't be merely to just blast the opponent out of the water. We should instead correct gently in the hope of strengthening our relationship with one another in God's truth. If you have people in your life, or maybe you're this way in somebody else's life, where one of the roles that you have in your relationship, it's this way in marriage, it's this way in the parent-child relationship and friendship, where, where part of the role is to say, if I see something in you that is contrary to what God wants for you, part of the nature of our friendship or our relationship is for me to... To, to be a set of eyes for you when you can't see that. Being in a place where we welcome that from other people is a very vulnerable place to be, right? It's a place where we risk a lot in saying, you know, tell me what you see. And the nature of that kind of relationship and kind of confrontation should not only be that the one person is helping the other person grow in life, but that the one person is, that the two people together are deepening their relationship with each other in the process of that. That that should be the, the, the hope of our correction is that there's a gentleness to it that strengthens our relationship with one another in the truth of the Lord, which leads to the third and final point of striving to live at peace with the church, and that is desire good for your opponent, for your enemy, for the person you're arguing with. 
Because he says this, Paul says this in the text, he says, a godly person corrects his opponents with gentleness so that God may perhaps, this is 25 and 26, grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. That there's an objective that we want and what the objective that we want is good. And so this means we have to check our motives. We have to ask ourselves, if I engage in debate, why am I doing it? If I'm engaging in an argument, why? What is it that I want, that I desire for the person or the entity I'm arguing with? It's important because because our motives play such a huge role in the health of our relationships, right? When you find yourself not liking somebody else, What motivates you in your relationship with them? Sometimes what motivates us is avoidance. I just, I'm going to interact, I'm gonna conduct myself in such a way that I don't have to interact with you at all. Sometimes the motive is we're really just hoping for a fall, if we're being honest. Like, nothing would delight me more than for you to publicly crash and burn. And so maybe I will contribute to that in some way. Maybe I'll, maybe that'll be the part of my argument. And Paul tells Timothy, no, no, no. When you have to correct somebody, when you have to confront, do it with gentleness in the hope that what it's going to produce is repentance. That's the hope, that you're wanting good. So strive to live at peace, which comes to the second point, the second large umbrella point, is pursue spiritual maturity and usefulness. And the first point under this, pursue spiritual maturity and usefulness, and I have just three on this one, is grow up quickly. I love the forthrightness of Scripture. That Scripture doesn't say, life is a journey, and it's just, uh, the target changes all the time, and you know, your role in life is just to kind of go through and try to be the best you that you can be and experience the wonder of things, and and just kind of float from here to there, and you know, it's, it's all about the journey and it's not about the destination and it's not about the growing. It's just about kind of being present, right? And we can get into that kind of language that just, it's like having your feet planted firmly in midair. And, and what Paul says in verse 22 to Timothy is he says, flee youthful passions. It's another way of saying, grow up as quickly as you can. Flee youthful passions. So often the roots of disunity spring from rushing half-cocked into a situation, unprepared to engage in well-informed dialogue, but still really ready to fight, right? I may not know everything there is to know. I may not even have clear thoughts about it, but boy, am I ready to fight with this imagined other side. And I think I know what they think, and it's monstrous, right? And Paul is appealing to Timothy and he's saying, live and model peace and humility in such a way that you will be less and less combative and arrogant and that you will consider those things youthful passions and that you will flee them. He's saying, Timothy, as somebody who is called to set an example, grow up. Is that harsh? Is it hard for us to hear that? It's funny, the older I get, the more encouraging I, I, that sounds to me of scripture telling me, you're not, you don't have to be stuck 
in the youthful passions and nearsightedness of your youth, that you can grow through these things. So seek to grow, which leads to the second point in here, is that is seek discernment in righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Seek discernment, seek wisdom. Paul says it this way, he says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Have nothing to do with ignorant controversies. And here's, here's the part I wanna tease out. He says, have nothing to do with ignorant controversies because you know they breed quarrels. That you know is so good for us to see here. What Paul is saying is he's saying, Timothy, you know that foolish controversies breed quarrels. Now do something with that knowledge. If you know that foolish controversies breed quarrels, then what are you gonna do when it comes to foolish controversies? Are you going to engage with them? Or are you gonna stop and say, wait a minute, I've run the numbers in my head and I, I know that if I type a 1500 word response to somebody's Facebook page right now, I know that it's not going to change their position, but what it may do is spin off into this really nasty, ugly thread of just debate and character assassination, and maybe, maybe what I should do with the next 45 minutes that the Lord has given me on this planet should be to help my wife with the dishes instead of this thing I was going to do, or, or play a game of trouble with your kid, right? Or go for a walk, or anything else in all creation, right? You could do anything else, but what he's saying is, Timothy, you know that if you do this, it breeds this. Do something with that knowledge. Do some, connect these dots. Certain behaviors yield certain results. Seek to understand the patterns and then behave in such a way that promotes righteousness, faith, love, and peace. That's pursuing spiritual maturity and youthfulness. And then the third and final point on this second, so are you all with me? This is like point, I don't know. I have so many points on my page here, but they're short, and that makes me feel good. Apply yourself to hard work and regular study so that you might serve better for God's glory. Do hard things. Uh, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. This is Paul writing here in 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I love how scripture tells Timothy and by extension those who speak in the name of the Lord, that's all believers everywhere, um, care about the quality of your message and seek to grow in your ability to communicate truth and to understand truth. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. And see what Paul is saying is what he's saying is the truth is, as Christians, we are co-laborers with Christ in the work of the spread of the gospel in this world. You're a co-laborer. What does it mean to be a co-laborer? He says, well, I mean, and I love how practical uh, Paul is with Timothy here. He says one of the most logical things he can. He says, if it's true that you are a co-laborer in the gospel, then what that means for you is this is important work that you're called to. That's just logic. If you're a co-laborer with Christ, the work that you're called to is important. And if it's important, then study it. 
Study the story. Hone your craft. Work in a way that you won't be ashamed of. Study the content of the gospel itself so that you might rightly apply the word. Paul talks about we're vessels, and he says some vessels are used for honorable use and dishonorable use, and when he describes the vessel for honorable use, he says three things about it. He says these vessels, they're set apart. Okay, that's what Christians are. We're set apart as witnesses for Christ. Number two, they're useful to the master, he says. So we're set apart, useful, and then third, ready to be used. And so what Paul is saying, and he's he's saying contend to be ready to be used, we, we have discernment, maturity, because you can build the kingdom. You can build the kingdom because God is a God of means. And so let us pursue spiritual maturity and youthfulness, which brings me to the third and final big umbrella, and there are four quick points under this one, and that is support the church in its worship and in its work. This is one of our membership vows. Actually, it's vow number four that we would support the church in its worship and work to the best of our ability. Um, it's an important thing for us to be about as Christians that we wouldn't see the church as a, as a place we go to, but that we would see the church as a thing that we are part of. Uh, that, that, that when you walk into this room, uh, you would say, uh, this, is, this is mine. Uh, this is my church. I'm a part of this. So what are the headings under this? Support the church and its worship and its work. Champion truth, driven by what you are for, not against so that the way that we champion truth would be championing it for what we're ultimately about, ultimately for, not what we're ultimately against. Paul says it this way in verse 10. He says, I endure everything. I endure everything. Why? For the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus for eternal glory. What is he about? What is he for? that the elect may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's what he's for. Not that the damned would be condemned. Isn't that beautiful? That he's, he's talking about my energy, my shoulder goes into what I am for. So what are we for? That people would hear the gospel and believe. That the elect may obtain salvation We are, as a church, founded on the one to whom we belong. We champion what builds this unity because instead of circling our backs to each other in a defensive posture saying, my job in this world is just to fight the enemy, instead what we're saying is, no, because I've been bought with the blood of Christ and because he is a God of means who works through the witness of his people, what I'm about is I'm about bearing witness to his love and his mercy and his kindness. And then this becomes our confession to the world. So champion truth driven by what you are for, not against. Second, pray earnestly for your church leaders. Pray earnestly for your church leaders. He says it this way. He says it in verse 2-2. Entrust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Uh, One of the... uh, articles that I've seen floating around during this season of COVID is that there are a lot of people leaving pastoral ministry in response in some measure to the pandemic. 
Uh, I want you to hear loud and clear that today is our second birthday as a church, our second, second anniversary as a church. I have never been happier uh, as a pastor than I have been this last two years. I love what the Lord is building. I love the way he's building it. I love you. Uh, I love the calling that he has on my life and what I get to do as a pastor. And I'm so happy and I'm so content and I've never once thought of leaving ministry. So I wanna say that very loud and clear because what, because what I wanna say with that is I wanna say pray for pastors, pray for elders, pray for deacons, pray for church leaders, pray for lay leaders, pray for, pray for people that the Lord has called to be leaders in the church because ministry is a hard thing anyway. During it, during, doing it during a pandemic is, is, complicates that in, in, in many other ways. Uh, I see stories and I have friends and I know people. I got an email from, even from strangers, I got an email from somebody this week because of something I had written a while back uh, per- pertaining to longevity and ministries, just saying that he was, he was uh, this weekend going to resign uh, from his church uh, and he didn't know what was next, but he just knew that he couldn't, he just didn't feel like he could stay and, and do what he was doing. And it's, it's I want us to understand that it, that it's, the Lord calls people to different things. I'm not taking anything away from that. But I want us to hear and understand that it's a loss for the church when faithful ministers switch vocations. Uh, the church needs faithful pastors. The church needs people who will love and serve the church well. And uh, there was a time when um, clergy got special parking places. You know, where, where if you were clergy, you get, you get to go to places, you, get, you got into things, you got, because there was kind of a cultural respect for clergy. Um, and that's kind of gone now. I wouldn't say that I feel disrespected, but I would also say I don't lead with the fact that I'm a pastor when I talk to people, uh, because that means a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, and I don't always know um, what it means to them. I can tell you that there have been a number of conversations I've been in where when that's come out, uh, the conversation has either abruptly changed or ended <laughs> um, for reasons that I don't know, but, you know, that, are, that belong to them. But what I'm saying is pray for church leaders, pray for pastors, especially during this time. It's hard. I, I have the benefit of being a part of a multi-site church, which means that uh, throughout the week, I'm interacting very regularly with Scott uh, and Stacy, Scott Sauls and Stacy Croft and Micah Edmondson and Todd Teller and David Filson. And as a part of a multi-site church, those are I have a band of brothers that I'm that I'm pastoring alongside of, and um, I, I'm not alone in what I do, and I'm grateful for it. It's one of the reasons I, I like the multi-site model, is because I have. Um, other pastors who are friends and we're together all the time. And I think it would be hard if you, if you are a solo pastor of a small to medium-sized church with a tight budget and people getting laid off and you've been meeting in a school and schools are not taking churches back into them and so you're indefinitely sort of suspended and trying to figure out live stream but you've, you don't really, you didn't study technology at seminary and you, you don't really have the budget to buy equipment and you're trying to find your way and it just mounts up, right? And it gets hard to where people say, I don't know how to continue this without feeling like I've just got a million pounds on my shoulders. Pray for pastors. That's what I'm asking. Pray for pastors because what is he saying here? He's saying a way you can build up the church is you can recognize that the Lord calls people 
into these roles of leadership, elders, deacons, pastors, uh, lay leaders, all kinds of folks into these roles, and they're called to the important ministries of, of doing things like guarding doctrine in a time where doctrine is being assailed, and doctrine is, even the word doctrine carries with it a, connota- a bad connotation like, like dogma, which dogma, there, there are books where dogma is in the title because it was a celebrated concept, and now it's just kind of seen as lifeless, suffocating legalism. And yet Christians are called to contend for sound doctrine because there is such a thing as truth. Called to shepherd the flock. Called to teach people, pray for them, that they would follow Christ faithfully. There are people who are called to this. And and pray that they would serve according to the strength that the Lord supplies for the glory of Christ and for the oversight of his church on earth. Because this is part of God's design. It's why Paul's writing to Timothy. So pray earnestly for leaders. Third, warn about wolves. I like this one. I like this one because what he says in verses 17 and 18 is he's talking about false teachers, false teaching, and he says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. And what's happening is Hymenaeus and Philetus, and we talked about them last week, they were teaching something that was theologically wrong, And they were committed to that teaching. They were committed to teaching something that promoted falsehood. And so what does Paul do? Paul warns the church about them. He's contending for what builds up by pointing out false teachers. So it means this. It's going to sound so antiquated for me to say in our culture. But it means this. If you know of subversive against the gospel agendas that are coming into the church for the purpose of, an inten- of intentionally deconstructing the gospel and promoting another way of believing that's contrary to scripture, one way you contend for the unity of the church is by exposing that false teaching and sometimes it means exposing the false teacher. Now let me be really clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying if somebody believes something that you think is not theologically sound, don't come tell me. Like, <laughs> there's no end to that. That's not about, he's not talking about this. He's not saying, hey, uh, this person believes differently about this thing that we believe, and I thought you should know. No, what Paul is talking about is somebody who is teaching a false gospel on purpose and not, and, and they're committed to it. They're committed to bringing it into the church and contending for a false message willingly and knowingly. In those cases, he's saying, warn about the wolves because that contends for what builds up. That doesn't mean tattle on each other because they don't believe everything you believe. It means look for, if there are people that you know. I actually had this experience in my, in my uh, high school youth group where there was actually somebody who came in to be a youth leader who was actually part of a cult. It was the 80s when that was a whole big thing, right? And it actually happened in my little hometown. Anyway, warn about wolves. Uh, Lastly, rejoice that God rules the church, that the Lord is the one holding this thing together. Rejoice in that. Supporting the church in its worship and work is rejoicing that the Lord is the one who holds it together. 
not saying the world is on fire, but saying the Lord is preserving his church and he's done so down through the ages. What's Paul say here? He says in verse 2, 9, he says, the, Lord, the word of the Lord is not bound, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The, Lord's, the Lord knows those who are his. God knows truth from falsehood. He cares more about this church than any of us ever could. And he'll never cease being faithful to his own. And though we're called to unity, Christ ultimately is the one who holds his church together. And this should bring us great joy and relief because he's the one who holds us together, not us. His firm foundation stands and it bears this seal. The Lord knows, he knows those who are his. And he keeps us for his purposes and he never fails. So I pray that that would be our prayer together that we would be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ and that we would live our life before the face of God, humbly devoted to his word and his church for his glory and by his grace because he made the church to be a place that functions in healthy ways when we live at peace with one another and when we pursue spiritual maturity and when we support the church in its worship and its work. So I pray that we would together contend for these things as we rely on the Lord to be the one who preserves us and that we would delight in that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of the local church. We thank you for um, being a part of this church uh, that celebrates two years of existence today. Uh, Lord, thank you for, for the ways that you have worked in our midst and we ask that you would give us many, many, many more years to come. Uh, where we would be deepening in our community with one another and our affection and our love for you, our zeal for truth and our humility and love and gentleness and kindness uh, toward others uh, within and outside of the church. Lord, preserve us and protect us. You promise that you will. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.